Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this chance to sit down with you and to talk today. I know that the episodes are a little further apart now. I think the last one that I did a conversation on was the uh, allegory of the olive tree. But I still am deeply interested in Mormonism. I'm still listening uh, to things as they're happening. I just got uh, done listening to parts one and two and am getting ready to listen to part three of Radio Free Mormon and John DeLynn's interview of Robert Rittner, renowned Egyptologist, and I'm finding those episodes so deeply fascinating. But today I wanted to talk about not necessarily a specific issue per se in terms of history, but instead to talk about people who leave and the people who stay and the stories that we tell uh, about each other. In the first half of life, we want so badly to be part of the group. And generally in the first half of life, we perceive that it is our responsibility to fit in. Fitting in requires us to change who we are. And fitting in requires us to compromise pieces of ourselves. So what we end up doing is we end up hiding, pretending, withholding. Um, We end up either holding back pieces of ourselves because those pieces are seen by others, or we perceive the risk of them being seen by others as shameful, and hence we would feel shame or guilt. And so we hold back pieces. At other times, we're pretending to be something we're not. We are signaling to each other that we fit the mold, that we belong in this box. But at some point in life, our need to be authentic begins to surface and become overwhelming to the point where we no longer want to fit in but instead we want to belong. Fitting in has us compromising pieces of ourselves, but belonging has us showing up as our true selves. Belonging has us taking the leap of risking not being accepted. Because if you're just fitting in, if you're compromising pieces of yourself, then then the people around you who accept you aren't accepting you for who you are, they're accepting you for who they think you are. And at some point, you just want to be you. You just want to belong. You want to be authentic and transparent and forthright. You want to show up in all your messiness and have people still like you and accept you and give you affirmation. And so in the second half of life, we start to be us and we start to uh, question things. We start to think individually. We start to push the boundaries of our tribe. And as believing Mormons begin to go through the process of individuation and become their unique selves. They begin to stand their own ground and they start to see their tribe as not having all the answers. And they start to perceive the authorities in their tribes as not necessarily being the experts. And so they no longer trust wholeheartedly the story inside their tribal system. And so as they begin to push back against the boundaries and start to look at other experts outside the tribe as they start to consider the historical data on both sides, as they begin to challenge their assumptions based on the narratives that were handed to them, they begin to start thinking critically about Mormonism and about a whole host of other things. Here's what I'm getting at, is that when people deconstruct Mormonism and lose belief and step away from their religious system, the people from within the system that are still there, still believing, begin to tell that person's story. 
they begin to corrupt their narrative. We throw out things and the system does it. So the system, by its doing it, gives permission to the members to also do it. It begins and its members begin to label those who leave as lazy, as having been deceived, as being a helper or under the influence of the adversary or Satan, that they have a lack of faith, that they've always wanted to sin. And the members begin to point at the behaviors of those who leave and say, I told you so. See, look what they're doing now. And those things go anything from um, dressing with uh, the idea of dressing less modestly. They begin to get tattoos. They might be using drugs. They might be accepting of uh, homosexual or transsexual people. They begin to have very liberal views on racism. They likely have begun drinking uh, alcoholic or adult beverages. They might be having sex with more than one person. They might deny their previous spiritual experiences. They might get piercings in various places of their body. They might move from a conservative political view to a liberal political view. They might deconstruct Jesus and walk away from Christianity altogether. They might be listening and reading and taking in the, the knowledge or expertise of experts and authorities from outside the tribe. And when these behaviors happen, people inside the system and the system itself labels these people as bad, broken, less than in some way. Did you hear about Jenny? Yeah, Jenny, Jenny left the church and now she's using drugs. Now she's drinking. I just saw Jenny yesterday at Buffalo Wild Wings and she had an adult beverage in her hand. You know what happens to people? They lose the spirit. I bet Jenny just wanted to sin the whole time. And you see, there's, there's this thing that happens and it's multifold. And I hope to hit on some of these today. But part of the reason why the believer needs to tell the story about the other person. And remember, each person has their own story. We could sit down with Jenny and we could say, hey, Jenny, I noticed that you left the church. Could you tell me about that journey? Could you share me what you ran into and what you were thinking and why you made the decisions you did? And can you also tell me how you live your life now and why the, the standards and the practices that you held once as a believing member, that those seem to not be as important to you today? And we could ask questions and we could let Jenny tell her own story, but there is purpose in hijacking another person's story and telling their story for them. And by the way, telling it inaccurately. Because anytime you tell another person's story, you almost certainly miss the mark. Now, the reason this happens, again, is multifold. Let's go into one of them. When, when believers inside a system take somebody's narrative and hijack it, one of the reasons that occurs is because you have to remove, as a believer, you have to psychologically, and you're not doing it intentionally. You're not inside your head going like, hey, woo. All of this stuff seems risky. I've heard a little inkling about what Jenny ran into, and I don't want to have to think about that. So I'm going to come up with other reasons for why she left. No, that's not what happens. It's, it's subliminal. It's, it's, below, it's below the Freudian uh, iceberg. It's on the bottom half under the water. Inside our heads, our brains need to maintain their comfortable sacred beliefs. The beliefs that are central to our identity the beliefs that are central to who we are, the things that are sacred to us that make up how we, how we base our life and our behaviors on. Those things are important. And the brain 
in ways that we can't even consciously think about as they're happening, the brain does not want to let go of those beliefs. It doesn't want to let go of that ground. And so when there's a conversation where you are presented with somebody inside your tribe having walked away because you are ethnocentric, this is your tribe, this is your community, these are your sacred beliefs, when somebody you know steps away, or even when people you don't know step away, your brain in its need to maintain that you staying is appropriate and the right answer and is the healthiest thing to do, you have to deny inside your head the legitimacy of the reasons for those folks leaving. You have to come up with reasoning and your system even hands it to you because your system needs to do that too. Imagine if your system and the believers within it sat around and said, there are really good reasons for stepping away from this religion. There are really good reasons, reasons that we haven't fully considered here on the inside. You know, the way that our system treats people, it doesn't make a lot of sense that we have living prophets. The, the messiness inside our history, the fact that every issue doesn't add up is beginning to bother me. It's beginning to rub me the wrong way. I can see that there is legitimacy in the messiness of the history to the point where maybe some of this just doesn't add up. Imagine if everybody thought that way. Your brain won't let you. Your brain won't let you go there. And so one of the reasons we corrupt another story is because we cannot grant any degree of legitimacy to the reasons that another human being may have discovered that led them to no longer wanting to be part of our tribe. So we come up with reasons. And again, our system has handed them to us. Our system has told us that Thomas Marsh left over milk and strippings and Simon's writer left because his name was spelled wrong. That people leave because they were deceived. Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer. We're told that people wanted to sin. John DeLynn and Jeremy Runnels. We're told that people lost faith and began to kick against the pricks. Kate Kelly. We see that people began to lose the spirit and began to become defiant and contentious. Bill Real. And so we come up with reasons. They must have been deceived by Satan. They must have just gotten lazy. They probably stopped reading their scriptures and they stopped praying. They've always wanted to sin. Look at them. They're sinning. And the reality is if you're willing to step back, I would make the argument that these are the most courageous people in the world. And I don't mean the names that I just said. I'm talking about every human being who was born into or joined at a young age, a high demand fundamentalist religion, who bought into it, hook, line, and sinker, who were all in. And they loved being in the system and they loved what the system did for them. And they loved the boundaries and the rules, and they were willing to give everything to that system, only to value truth more, and to dig a little deeper, and to be willing to push back, and to begin to think critically, and to be, begin to challenge their assumptions and the narrative of their system, and discover through the, the human uh, trait of discovery, we humans have evolved, we have been built to learn and to think, and to think new thoughts, and to challenge beliefs. For the humans that were all in, and then deconstructed their system because truth mattered more, and while the story told about them was that they were weak and lazy, and they didn't care, the reality is they worked extra hard. 
They weren't weak. They were as strong as anyone in that tribe. They were courageous. Do you understand what they put at risk? This system, like all other high-demand fundamentalist religious systems and other non-religious systems that are also high-demand systems, it is so important that you belong. The system manipulates that person's parents, that person's friends, that person's children, that person's siblings, that person's fellow ward members. The system manipulates everyone around in going like, oh, I've been taught that the moment my loved one begins to question the system and begins to criticize it in any way, I am to get as far away from them as possible. I am to see them as the enemy. I am to uh, sacrifice my relationship with them. I am to put distance between me and them because they've lost the spirit and it's too risky. And so the person deconstructing knows the risks that are at hand. I remember in the midst of my faith crisis, I'm around the age of 30 years old. I'm serving in a bishopric. I don't want to tell anybody. Least of all, I don't want to tell my wife. I don't want to tell my bishop. I don't want to tell my stake president. I know it's at stake. I know that if I walk away from this community, if this thing isn't true, I almost don't want to know. Because if it's not true, then I lose these people. I fully understand that I only get to maintain these relationships generally if I stay in this tribe. I realize that by telling my wife, there is a significant statistical chance that I end up divorced because I promised her an eternal marriage. I promised her that we would be together forever in this thing. And I don't know whether she loves this thing more than she loves me. And as people begin to say, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on. I have reservations. I've got questions. I've got doubts. And And recognize too, let me stop and say something else, which is that we are always, as the doubter, we are always softening our rhetoric. When somebody raises their hand with a critical question in class and says, I have some doubts or I have some questions, you can bet your ass that they almost certainly feel stronger about their unbelief or disbelief than they are letting on. Because we are taught that we better use soft rhetoric. We better say things in the softest of ways. And it's one of the reasons why I recognize that in this position of doing a podcast on Mormonism, having interviewed Richard Bushman, Terrell Givens, Fiona Givens, Patrick Mason, Sam Brown, and so many other scholars and uh, authors and folks who have some level of historical expertise in various areas, what I have learned having conversations with some of those people off the record some of the people that I've interviewed over the years, is that they believe much differently and much more liberally and have more unbelief than they ever tell publicly. And you see one of those raw moments when Richard Bushman is being recorded and he either forgets that he's being recorded or loses track of the fact. And he starts talking about the dominant narrative isn't true. You can see him being vulnerable there and then having to recant some of that afterward. And I'm simply telling you, having had conversations with some of these folks, that's also my experience, is that off the record, they're like, yeah, this is a lot messier. To the point that one of these folks, a name that you would absolutely recognize, who would be at the top of the list, this person told me and others, by the way, in a conversation at dinner, that the church is a, quote, thoroughly corrupt bureaucracy, unquote. Now, this person would never say that on the record. They would never say that publicly. But 
we are always having to word our belief. If the church came out tomorrow and said, non-literal belief is perfectly safe, you, you can completely keep holding callings, you can completely keep being an active member, you can have non-literal belief and still see inspiration in the restoration, and we accept that as a full-fledged standing member. There will be zero mechanisms used to separate you from the literal believers, and you will be able to fully participate. I promise you, that many of the names that you see as being fully believing and defending the church would immediately, within hours, days, maybe weeks, they would come out as non-literal believers. But inside the church, we have to use soft rhetoric. You would see people from the historical department. You would see BYU professors. You would see authors and scholars. You would see our best and brightest grabbing on to non-literal belief because they always held it but it wasn't safe to say it. And so when people are in Sunday school and they're expressing their concerns or they're pushing back against stories or they're sitting with their bishop or their spouse and saying, I'm struggling here. The reality is you are almost, if you're the one listening and you're hearing your loved one say these things or someone you care about say these things, they are almost assuredly telling you something softer than what really is. Because the system has, has, and it's given permission for its members to corrupt their story, to paint them as broken, to label them as less than, to say that they've done something wrong. And we use the story of Simon's Rider and Thomas Marsh and the three witnesses and a host of others to convey that point. And so once you understand that your loved one has simply began thinking outside the box and has deconstructed their system and is beginning to challenge these assumptions and is beginning to challenge the historical narrative and is beginning to challenge the impositions that the church gives. So when the church says these men talk to God and they know God's mind and will better than anyone else out there besides these top 15, and then you dive into the history around race and women, and sexism, and abuse, and historical um, contradictions, and polygamy with young brides, and the book of Abraham, and race and priesthood, uh, and 19th century material in the Book of Mormon, as your loved one goes down the rabbit hole, and by the way, the rabbit hole goes forever. The rabbit hole goes and goes and goes. I have been reading deep Mormon history since the age of 17 years old, and I still learn things today. I still learn new stuff all the time. I learned a host of new things listening to the Robert Rittner interview on the Book of Abraham. I keep learning. I remember just in recent years learning about the Lucy Walker story and doing that podcast on it. Um, and I would encourage anybody who's not listened to that episode, go listen to Lucy Walker and Spiritual Experiences. I'm still learning the messiness of Mormonism. And I'm still learning that our leadership and our authors and our system wanted to give us a really simple, faithful narrative. And that narrative is not only a complete mess, it's bullshit. It's complete and utter bullshit. And so once you understand it's bullshit, and if people are permitted and encouraged to examine the entire historical record, and it's the reason we say that Google's not the answer. It's the reason the leadership tries to scare us when it comes to the internet and tells us not to trust anything that's outside the church because anything that's critical is anti-Mormon. It's bad. It's going to cause you to lose the spirit. The reason systems threaten their members and manipulate their members into not looking at the information is because the information is not in favor of the system. The moment you stop trusting your inside sources 
and instead choose to trust the real experts who have the real credentials and the real data and the real historical record going back to the sources and looking at what Lucy Walker wrote in her journal and looking at what various people. So for instance, the three witnesses, we tell a really simple story about them. Those men are complicated men. Those men led complex lives and they said both good things and bad things about the church, but that's not going to be in your Sunday school manual. You're going to have to distrust the system enough so as to want to look at the material outside the system. And as your loved one does that, as your loved one begins looking at everything, looking at the, the, what, everything the critic says and weighing the arguments based on their merit, rather than giving the benefit of the doubt to their system, then now they're down the rabbit hole. And for most people, and when I say most, I'm talking about almost all, almost all people who have the thought inside their head that what if this thing isn't true and I really want to know if it is or isn't, most of those people, if not almost all of them, will end up outside the church. And it's why the church is losing lots of people. If you're listening right now and you're a believer, if you recognize, if you go back two decades, and when I go back two decades as a believing member of the church, I knew one person in my stake who left Mormonism who encountered anti-Mormon material, he was deceived by Satan, he got lazy, he wasn't reading and praying anymore, and that's what did it, and I, I bet he wanted to sin, but he left. And we all said, oh, woe is Gene, woe is Gene. He's missing out on so much. The thing was Gene was willing to question. Gene was willing to read. Gene was willing to think more deeply. And now today in 2020, there are people everywhere. Every one of you has a cousin, an aunt, a brother, a nephew, and a great uncle who have left the church having learned it isn't true. Because here's the internet. The information's right in front of you. It's right there. And people are taking advantage of the data because they really want the truth. They're no longer trusting their system's narrative or the authorities within their tribe. And so when people deconstruct and they leave, I want the whole point of saying all that I just said is to now go into detail about each of these things that they're doing and to explain why they're doing it. It's easy for us on the inside as believers to go, oh, I see Jenny drinking. That's probably what led to her apostasy. And the reality, reality is that Jenny became a critical thinker. Jenny became a grown adult who has awakened to the uh, falsifiable nature of her own system that she begins to go like, if this system isn't true, how do I want to live my life? And so the drinking isn't the cause of the effect of leaving. Rather, deconstruction and leaving is the cause to now changing your adult behaviors. So let's go through each of these. Dress. In the church, we teach that modesty is so important that people need to cover up their skin and not be a sexual temptation for others. And the reality is the moment you deconstruct this religious system and deconstruct to some degree God uh, in its totality, then there becomes no real need to be modest for the sake of sin. Humans are humans. We've been having sex for thousands of years. And if you go back in time to some earlier age, most experts surmise that we were having sex with lots of people. That sex is a natural function of being a human. And if you take God and religious narratives out, then yes, we're a little more evolved and we're a little more sophisticated and we're a little more modern, but we were born to have sex. And so people are going to dress a little more provocatively as they want to look a little sexier. People aren't going to have these rules of modesty that hold them back. 
tattoos. Again, once you let go that your body is not a temple in the way that Mormonism teaches, then for people to go to a tattoo parlor and get some symbol put on their skin that is meaningful to them, something they can look in the mirror and see that inspires them, that, that tells a story about how they took their life back or that they woke up or that they dealt with hard shit. It becomes, again, reasonable to understand why do people get tattoos? And you say, why are they using drugs? See, the moment you let go of the rules of the word of wisdom, and some people begin to sense that certain uh, substances aren't just bad for you, but that to some degree they allow you to be a healthier, happier version of yourself, that they are tools and resources to dive deeper into your consciousness, that they are an opportunity to begin to think new thoughts and to be, be able to uh, more efficiently deconstruct systems and boundaries and arbitrary constructs around them. And by the way, to sit here in 2020 and to see the data pouring in about the medical and human health benefit of some of these substances such as ayahuasca, such as uh, MDMA, such as cannabis. Again, if I would suggest if you're listening right now and you are, your jaw is hitting the floor and you're going, oh my God, this guy is making lots of bad things sound good. My suggestion would be go read Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind and set down for just a few hours your ground that your authorities are right and your rules are right and your boundaries are right and your religious narrative is right and begin to wrestle with whether there is real defiant truth outside of your system, outside of your own brain, outside of your own ground that you hold. People become more accepting of LGBT folks because when you see lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and a host of other um, ways in which humans show up in the world differently, just being human, the, your loved one who's deconstructed your system begins to realize that all the labels we place on people is a myth. All labels are myths. Oh, there's the, there's the Jews and we're the Christians. There's the Iraqis and we're the Americans. Anytime you separate people, anytime you separate humans based on them being any kind of specific difference that you see as an important difference, the color of their skin, the accent of their voice, the language they speak, the, the geographic place they live in, you are applying myth labels to those folks. And when people deconstruct, they begin generally to sense that to be human is to just be human. And that when someone shows up in the world as a lesbian or as transgender or as homosexual or as any other kind of human, that there's zero reason to see them as less than or other or outside as an outsider or as them. Instead, they're just human. They're us. They're different, but they're just the same. People begin to be more accepting. And so it's perfectly natural as people deconstruct high demand fundamentalist religious systems to become more accepting of the people that your tribe said were bad, broken, less than, needed to repent, needed to live out their life within certain ways that the rest of us don't. And so when it comes to the LGBT uh, segment, when it comes to racism and blacks and priesthood and Mormonism, folks begin to go like, man, we were pretty shitty. Our system is pretty shitty to these people. Our system likes to divide people into us and them, and them is bad and us is good. Us is in the path of truth. Us is on the road back to Zion. Us is going to live with our family together forever. Them, mm, not so much. 
And so why is your, your loved one drinking? Because again, the word of wisdom is bullshit. And so, yes, we need to be careful and responsible and healthy. We need to do things in moderation and not get uh, out of control. But also being human is making mistakes and learning from our mistakes and having opportunities to make mistakes and not having those mistakes seen as bad or awful or sin, but instead to go like, hey, we're humans and we're learning and we're never always getting it right. And there's so much unhealthiness and shadow inside of us. There's all these mechanisms we do, all these ways that we protect ourselves and put walls up. And your loved one, as they're deconstructing their system, they may try adult beverages and they may like them and they may continue drinking them. It's not sin. It's just showing up in the world as an adult. Humans have been using conscious altering substances for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of years. Why do they deny their spiritual experiences they had? You've had spiritual experiences. They're as strong as can be. You've had the hair raise up on your arm, on your neck. You've had promptings. Maybe you've had even more um, dynamic spiritual experiences than that. I've had visions. I have felt like I have um, spoken to messengers. I have had dramatic dreams. Why would I deny those? And the reason I deny them, the reason your loved one's denying them is because two things. One, they're saying like, they're not saying those things didn't happen. What they're saying is the way I interpreted them, the way I understood them doesn't work for me anymore. And it comes because of two reasons. The first is that every religion has believers inside of it that have spiritual experiences that confirm the truthfulness of their religious system. Number one. So whether you're a Catholic or a Mormon or a born-again Christian or a Hindu or a Buddhist, you have transformational spiritual insights and experiences interacting with your religious system. And so why do your experiences trump those of these other people who are in these other systems? Why do your experiences trump Tom Cruise's inside Scientology? Why do your experiences trump the guy who knocked on your door from the Jehovah's Witnesses? Why does your experience trump the Islamic terrorist who just strapped bombs to his chest and blew himself up in a crowd of people? And the second is that we have an explanation for these more mundane spiritual experiences. It's called elevation emotion. Jonathan Haidt is a a scientist who has done tons of research into the idea of elevation emotion. Elevation emotion is this warm, fuzzy feeling inside of us that all humans experience that tells them that when they do something good, that they've done something good. It tells them when they learned a new thing, that they've learned something exciting. Mormonism comes along. 200 years ago and takes this normal human experience and it changes the interpretation. It changes the definition so that Mormons think that only Mormons are experiencing it or generally, and that, and that it is a real way to tell the truth of something. And what Jonathan Haidt showed was that you can manipulate people into feeling elevation emotion when something falsifiable or something harmful is occurring. And because of those two reasons, your loved one goes, yeah, I had these experiences, but I no longer see them through the lens of, that I used to proclaim when I stood up at fast and testimony meeting. Instead, I see them now as simply a human experience that all humans are capable and many do have. It isn't a sign of truth. 
It isn't a sign of the true church. It's just a human experience. Your loved one gets piercings for the same reason that their dress has changed, for the same reason they got tattoos, for the same reason maybe they're having sex with more than one person. Because they don't feel like their body or their choices on how to live their life are, should be based on a religious narrative that is deeply faulty, demonstrably problematic, and perhaps even demonstrably falsifiable. Why did they move from conservative to liberal in their political standing? It's because they started to see other humans as having value and started to see the challenge of some humans to overcome the prejudices and um, obstacles that are in those folks' way as being unfair. They want every human to be prized and treasured as being equal in terms of their human value, and they want to do all that they can to help all of these other humans who used to be them and now they're just human to help them have the same opportunities to succeed in the world. They started caring about the planet in ways that, that when inside your religious system and having a conservative view, you're not even considering. They started to see the shame that's in the world and the biases and the prejudices. They begin to see that the reasons we gave inside our systems for the social issues and the stances we took on those issues, they begin to see that those reasons, those defenses don't really hold up. They're not near as strong and perhaps they're even weak. They no longer agree with this collective agreement that we have inside the system in terms of being pro-life or pro-choice, in terms of religious freedom versus uh, equality rights of patriarchy versus gender equality, of plan of salvation versus our homosexual gay and lesbian brothers and sisters. The narrative no longer holds, and so they have no problem challenging it. Why do they deconstruct Jesus? Why do they leave religion altogether? Because once they were given the tools to deconstruct Mormonism, to look at its history, to evaluate the merit of its claims, to begin to be a critical thinker, and to try to find the truth by looking through all the data, both good and bad, they now have the skill set. They now have the ability. They now have the experience to be able to go out into the world and to deconstruct other systems and other narratives. And the Jesus narrative, while far removed in time, is also deeply with problems. The scriptures as you know them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament, is deeply problematic as well. So why wouldn't they deconstruct Jesus? Why wouldn't they see some of the same unhealthy mechanisms as they tried to move to another church? As they tried to look into another form of spirituality, they begin to see other kinds of hierarchies and other kinds of arbitrary constructs and other kinds of rules and boundaries and rigidity and manipulations and mechanisms that they saw in different ways in Mormonism. And now they can pick them out, point them out, take them, deconstruct them, look at them, take them apart, and only keep the pieces that have value. So no wonder they don't find another spiritual system to work. No wonder they start to deconstruct the New Testament. No wonder they discard religion altogether and become atheist or some type of individual spirituality. They no longer trust the religious stories of others because they see how many religious narratives are out there and how every one of them is a myth. Every one of them is problematic. And every one of them might uh, include truths and principles to live by, but each one of them 
those stories wrap those truths and principles in a religious narrative that doesn't hold up to scrutiny? Why do they start picking up books and start to read and listen to podcasts and books on Audible and trying to learn new truths that are no, not accepted, not seen as kosher, not seen as okay inside your religious system? Why do they begin listening to people like Richard Rohr, Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris, and lots and lots of others, John Shelby Spong, and I could go on and on, Bart Ehrman, Riza Aslan. Why does your loved one begin trusting other authorities? Because your loved one now understands the manipulated pressure they felt and were taught and adopted to give preference to the authorities within your tribe, your leaders, Boyd K. Packer, Gordon B. Hinckley, Ezra Taft Benson, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith, Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks. You were taught to perceive these men as the men that should be trusted. You've been taught to take the things they say and to put them above in priority to other voices in the world. And what your loved one learned was that these old men inside the church don't have much to offer. And on top of that, they get a lot of things wrong. These men don't have some secret access to some secret truth. In fact, if anything, they tend to be often behind on social issues. They tend to not say much in terms of prophesying, seeing, or revelating. In fact, almost nothing. And what little they do give seems to be very explainable as a group of leadership inside a corporation trying to adjust to the changing times in the world and to make their religion less abrasive to the young people who have access and who find quickly answers and data and information on the internet. And once your loved ones saw that these 15 men just don't really have any special access to anything secret, uh, any kind of secret truth that nobody else can get, the reality is your loved one starts to learn voraciously starts to uh, begin to look deeper into themselves and to address trauma and their own unhealthy mechanisms in how they parent and how they love inside their relationship with their primary partner, how they deal with situations at work and in life. They are learning voraciously so much faster, so much quicker. They are learning so much more truth by reading the real experts, by listening to and reading the people who have, through their own experience and through their own learning, have something unique and truthful to teach. So why has your loved one changed so much? It's because they started to think outside the box. And once they started to think outside the box, the reality was they, they started to step back from the box and they got further and further away from the box. And here's what they saw. Mormonism is one really little tiny box that humans across the expanse of this world and across the expanse and breadth of time, it is one little tiny box among billions of other boxes. And that once they stepped back, they not only saw Mormonism was this tiny little box that limited them, but they also saw all the other boxes too. And they saw that each of those boxes tried to offer something to its adherents as well. And that many had truth claims and many had religious narratives and many had spiritual experiences. And the reality was they saw that all those boxes were limitations. All those boxes limited. They provided constructs by which we could at an earlier age learn and thrive. But on the second half of life, once your loved one began to wake up, they began to realize that those little tiny boxes everywhere were limiting. They were only one little tiny way to view the world. 
and that the world is this big, beautiful place. And how we humans do it in one location or in one specific time in world's history is only one possible arbitrary way of doing it. And that we could build this world entirely differently, that all constructs by which we live are arbitrary constructs. And that now when you think as an individual and you show up in the world authentically and you show up with transparency and forthrightness, you realize that you are the only human who has ever lived exactly like the way you are. Your wants and needs are different. Your desires are different. The things that interest you, the things that turn you off, the things that turn you on, the the parts of your sexuality, the parts of your hobbies and interests, the things that uh, you gravitate towards and the things that there is a repulsion to. You are the only human who has shown up on this planet since the beginning of time exactly like you. And every one of these little boxes are meant to sort us out, us and them. And the reality is every one of us is a human being living out a unique human experience. Eckhart Tolle, another wise voice, by the way, one that Mormon leaders certainly wouldn't want you to listen to. Eckhart Tolle says, we are the universe. We are the universe experiencing itself as a human for a little while. All of these stories fall short. All of these narratives fall short. The only narrative that matters to each and every one of us is our own story. My two senses don't corrupt your loved one's story. Ask them questions. Let them tell their story. Honor their story. Let them living out their human existence the way they want to. Let it have just as much value. Maybe you can learn from them. Let it have just as much value as your narrative has to you. Don't tell other people's stories. And certainly don't tell their story inaccurately. And don't tell their story before they have a chance to tell their story. What stops you from sitting down with your loved one and asking, what happened? Please, I want to hear your story and I don't want to pass judgment on it. I just want to know from you what happened that led you to seeing Mormonism as problematic and not worthy of your time and energy being spent here. Let them tell their story. When they show up in the world differently, honor the way they live out their human life. There isn't, to the degree that you've been taught, I wouldn't frame things in the way that you've been taught in right and wrong. Rather, I would say there is responsible and there is healthy and there is irresponsible and unhealthy. And every human should have the right to take risks, to dress differently, to think unique thoughts, to have views and perspectives to learn in whatever arena they want to, and to push back and challenge the narratives and systems around them. Your system taught you to see them as broken. Your system taught you to see them as less than. Your system taught you to see them as evil or bad or in bed with the devil or lacking faith or wanting to sin. But you get to walk away from this conversation telling yourself a new story.
healed the flame 